the herkiest, jerkiest uh, golf swing that you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. And you thought that he was making it up, but he wasn't. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Professor Fi podcast. Episode numero uno. I'm Kyle. I am Ethan. And we are so, so excited to have our first guest on here today. And uh, this first one is definitely near and dear to my heart. Let's just say that he was my personal advisor at my alma mater, Stonehill College. He is from Idaho, all the way from Idaho to Massachusetts. He is a professor of marketing at Stonehill College. He is the Integrated Marketing Communications Program Director. And he is also a member in the Professional Golfers Association of America. The, yes, the PGA since 1999. Over 20 years of pro golfing experience. Ethan, isn't that amazing? That is quite amazing. I unfortunately never had the opportunity to take Professor McGinnis, although I've heard nothing but good things about him. I was not in marketing. I was in management information systems. So I just sat behind a computer instead of actually going out there and marketing out to people. <laughs> but I, I'm really excited to sit down with them. I am too. And without further ado, here is Professor Lee McGinnis. Professor, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So in our intro, we said that you were from Idaho and that you are a member of the Professional Golfers Association. I was just wondering if those two were related at all. Um, what is there to do out in Idaho, you know? Oh, there's Most of us, we just think potatoes, but did you get into golf because um, you were in Idaho, or what was that? like? Well, uh, <laughs> I always played golf as a kid growing up in Twin Falls, Idaho, the same place where Evil Knievel tried to jump to Snake River Canyon. I don't know if uh, you, you, you two are too young to recall that, of course, but uh, I, I always uh, played golf. And uh, actually, when I was uh, uh, going in for my master's degree at Kansas State University, I thought, you know what? I enjoy playing golf. I'm going to become a professor someday. So why not try to get my PGA card so I can give golf lessons during the summertime? And so I worked on that plan. It was actually between my master's degree and my PhD that I decided to uh, try to get into the PGA of America. And uh, we had some family friends who uh, lived in the Sun Valley, Idaho area, a big ski resort town, who owned a nine-hole golf course. And they invited me to uh, become the pro there. So I was uh, going through the apprenticeship program. Actually, I hadn't passed the player's ability test yet. But I was working towards that, and uh, my game wasn't quite where it needed to be at that point. And so it took me a few tries at the player's ability test to, to pass and to become a, an apprentice in the PGA program. So I worked there for a couple of uh, years in Sun Valley, Idaho. And then I decided, you know what, I want to kind of move on from there and try to work in one of the meccas of golf. And that was in the Monterey Peninsula in California, where, you, of course, you have Pebble Beach, Cypress Point, and the list goes on of all the number of really high-quality, top golf courses in the world. So I worked on my apprenticeship, and to get into the PGA, of course, you have to pass the player's ability test, and then, uh, which is uh, two 18-hole rounds of golf played in the same day under a certain target score. 
and it's a 15 strokes over the course rating uh, if you want to be more detailed about it but anyway i passed the player's ability test at santa rosa golf and country club in california and uh, then I, I did my apprenticeship uh, most of that work over at the uh, rancho kenyatta golf club in carmel california and uh, actually the Idaho part of the whole thing was the mere fact that I started in the Sun Valley area uh, with the family friends, but I worked on my apprenticeship for four years and then it was time for me to go on to graduate school again. And so I applied to different areas, different schools across the country. I was accepted into Nebraska and uh, I decided uh, I'm going to move to Nebraska and I had to work in the golf industry for about another six months to complete all of my uh, apprenticeship hours. And so I did that and, uh, Held on to the, I was elected into the PGA in July of 1999, I believe it was. So uh, almost uh, 22 years ago now. But uh, so that's, I just kept it. And uh, even though I don't give golf lessons because you have to be employed at least six months out of the year at a PGA sanctioned facility, I still maintain my membership because I do a lot of research in the golf industry or about the golf industry and it helps me to access data to access golf courses to access events and things of that nature and so i've maintained it and uh, i work so hard for it that i don't want to just let it go by the wayside so yeah i guess uh, there is a little bit of a connection to idaho in that standpoint and that's where i started but the, there's plenty of things to do in idaho believe it or not it's a really <laughs> fast growing state and uh, the boise area where we moved from i was a visiting professor at Boise State before we moved out here, but uh, Boise's a hustling and bustling city. It's almost, uh, there's almost a million people in that area now. So uh, I think that would probably uh, surprise a lot of people. Oh yeah, for sure. Ethan, did you know any of that about, about Idaho? I, I oh, I'm learning a lot about Idaho today. <laughs> <laughs> More than you ever wanted. It. So where would you say your favorite uh, golf course is? Would it be Idaho, California, even Mass? Well, uh, the golf, courses in, uh, <laughs> the, the, the golf courses in uh, California are really hard to do, do. I was fortunate enough to play Cypress Point, which is a privately held golf course or a private golf course. That's a very tough to get into. So I would say, you know, that one's routinely rated number one in the world. And I've played Pebble about a half a dozen times, Pebble Beach. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what, uh, and Idaho has his fair share of really nice golf courses too, up, especially up in Sun Valley. But uh, coming out to New England, I've been thrilled to play some of the courses I have. I think that, you know, this last year we were able to play some uh, very interesting ones, uh, Contanset, uh, uh, then we were up in, uh, where was it, uh, New Hampshire, and we played uh, like uh, Winnipesaukee Country Club, which was stunning, extremely stunning. Uh, there are different types of golf courses, uh, actually, you know, different kinds of golf courses out here compared to out west. I think out west you have a little bit more open spaces, but out here they're so doggone tight with the trees and the, yeah, I, I, but I, I am always stunned by the golf courses out here. Out in yeah. New England. And that's why my balls always end up in the woods. <laughs> oh, it's not hard to do. It's I not know. hard to do out here at all. But uh, no, I, I think the courses out here are just as beautiful as they come. So you mentioned that uh, that you don't give any golf lessons, but you did do a study on expert golf instructors. Right. Um, can you go into detail about what that study was like and what you looked at with those golf instructors? 
yeah, my colleague at the time, uh, Brian Glukowski and I uh, were interested. I told him about a study I was conducting on what makes the best golf instructors in the country so good at their craft. And uh, what we did is uh, we called upon instructors that were listed in the top 10 in either golf magazine or golf digest, not top 10, top 50 or top 100, depending on how they categorized them. And then uh, we interviewed, uh, I can't remember how many we interviewed, but we just wanted to make sure we understood what made them so good at their craft and what they did. And we came up with uh, this knowledge transfer circumplex, if you will. It's a, and it had different components of uh, such things as, you know, metaphors, storytelling, uh, analogies. And these golf pros were so good at being able to take on the perspective of the student, try to figure out through discussions with them, things that they identified with, whether it was baseball, uh, whatever the case, fishing, and try to identify their interests and then put everything in their perspective as to what it felt like to uh, be able to swing a ball or that dynamic or swing a club rather, or get that dynamic balance, that weight shift or the shoulder rotation. They were so good at being able to figure it out from the, the client's perspective of what it meant to do these different things and place that in the language that they understood. So they were very, very good at understanding their learning style beyond, you know, if you're a visual learner or a, an audio learner, that type of thing, but how to understand it physically as to how to make that transfer. And these people were really good at that. And so I, I think that uh, that's the one thing that we really truly discovered. And uh, we used what was called a narrative structure. And, uh, you know, the, the narrative structure is looking at things uh, more broadly speaking, and you look you use such things as tactics and analogies and metaphors and that type of thing as tactics to go into this overall narrative structure is what we called it. But uh, uh, we enjoyed that study and uh, we never really did much of it, again, from that perspective, uh, much of the, I guess, the expert training from that uh, perspective, but uh, we used that circumplex structure when we examined other things in our research. Now, there's a saying as old as time. I think it's like um, the best players can't be good coaches, something along the line. Now, did uh -huh. you see a lot of that, that like people who probably exhibited like a lot better of a form? Because I know when I was learning to golf from my stepdad, actually, there was a lot of you got to figure out what works for you and do it. How does that kind of translate from a, an expert teacher? Okay, uh, I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, yeah, you don't see a lot of uh, really, really good players. I mean, tour caliber players that become coaches. You do have a few. I mean, don't don't get me wrong, but uh, I would say a lot of your really good players probably couldn't necessarily explain to you how they play so well. I mean, uh, Dustin Johnson, for example, the best player in the world, or routinely up there in the top five, top ten. Mm -hmm. He uh, he probably couldn't tell you you know, uh, what he does right or all the mechanics of the golf swing. He just understands it intuitively and is able to apply it. But then you have, uh, you know, the players, uh, the coaches of these tour players who are very, very good at communicating that. And, you know, they're probably fairly decent players in their own right, or they wouldn't understand the golf swing. You have to be a certain caliber of player anyway to get into the PGA of America, which most of these guys are PGA instructors. And so I, I would say that, uh, you know, these guys uh, or women and men who teach uh, just understand, you know, the what it means to have that overall swing. They're able to break it down 
And, uh, you know, your best players are probably too impatient maybe to <laughs> be able to transfer that knowledge. Yeah, I totally understand that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So now, now pivoting here, um, you mentioned with coaches, men or women, part of your studies have been growing the game of golf, not just in general, but among women as well. And you also did a study on that. Can you also dive into that a little bit? Sure. Uh, well, my dissertation was on how to grow the golf industry uh, among women, particularly. And that was something that I always took a, an interest in. It's like, why isn't the golf industry bringing in more women? You know, not only from a professional standpoint, where I think at the time I conducted the study, only 3% of the workforce, the PGA of America workforce was uh, women, you know, those uh, people who are participating at country clubs and that sort of thing. Wow. And then I also noticed that, my gosh, you know, the, the playing public is so skewed toward men. And at that time, it was about 80% men who played golf and about 20% women who played golf. And I thought, uh, you know, this was during when I started conducting this study, uh, the golf industry was not hurting for more participants. In fact, uh, uh, they were building golf courses left and right across the country because it had really taken off. A lot of that was due to Tiger Woods, the Tiger Woods effect. But people were just playing a lot of golf, but it was still primarily men. And I thought, you know, it would be a good idea if the industry focused more on bringing more women into the game. And so I kind of wanted to um, dig in as to why women weren't playing golf. And I looked at some theoretical things. I took a one of my favorite courses that I ever took was a, a gender course at the University of Nebraska, taught by Julia McQuillan, who is actually, she got her degrees from uh, the University of Connecticut, UConn. But she was outstanding, and uh, it opened my eyes to a lot of different things, a lot of different rituals and things of that nature that men were probably participating in that didn't really make women feel welcome at a golf course, or the industry hadn't quite prepared itself to welcome women into the golf course. And uh, so there were different levels, you know, that were actually happening there, the interactive level where you're dealing with people one-on-one interpersonally or interpersonally. And then, you know, you had uh, what's called the institutional level and uh, that, that sort of thing. But uh, we were looking at all the different ways that women were not being welcomed into the game of golf. And so it turned out to be a really fascinating study. We used what was called a dramaturgical perspective, which is by Irving Goffman. And that looks at the world as being a stage where you have front uh, stage activities, backstage activities, and we broke down the golf industry by all these dramaturgical components, such as the props, such as the backstage front stage, and looked at how they were so gendered and not necessarily sexist. Uh, you know, sexist has a different meaning, a different implication, but gendered in the fact that they favored men, whether that was something that was overt or not. And uh, since then, I've been very interested in trying to grow the game among women. I published quite a few, we published quite a few articles in that area. And uh, one of the best ones probably was uh, at the Journal of Sport Management, which is a top journal in that area, and uh, Leisure Sciences. And uh, these involved my dissertation chair in most cases, Jim Gentry, as well as uh, Julia McQuillan. And uh, we just had uh, fun conducting the research. We did a lot of uh, interviews with women golfers and what made them not feel welcome to the game of golf. And we did uh, come up with strategies on how to try to 
make the game more appealing to women, you know, and such as the marketing of it, such as, you know, making sure that the apparel and the golf clubs are very, are so, are prominent to women, you know, to give them the feeling that things should be as equal as they are for men. One of the things that the, one of the things that the golf industry has done that is good is that they have made it less likely that they're going to name the forward tees, the ladies tees as they used to, you know, now it's all based upon ability, you know, irrespective of one's gender. So that, that's a good thing. One of the things that we proposed, which really hasn't been done to that extent yet, is taking out the gender-specific uh, golf clubs and golf balls because that gives the impression that, you know, get, oh, because you have these golf clubs, you have to perform in a certain gender role, you know, if you have something that's uh, signifying gender. So we looked at things like that. Some manufacturers, I say, have abided by that where they're not using gender specifically to indicate that, but uh, those are some of the things that we came up with in that area, and uh, we found it pretty pretty interesting. And uh, now we're trying to figure out how to get more millennials in the game of golf. And up until this last year, the millennials weren't really taking up the game at all. They were looking at the game as being something that was boring, that they didn't uh, want to spend, you know, four or five hours out on the country club. A lot of the oh. young parents, uh, males specifically, didn't uh, have that same need necessarily to go out to the golf course and spend. <laughs> 12 hours there, you know, playing and drinking and playing cards or whatever, you know, that's kind of an archaic way of looking at it, but uh, they, they didn't feel that same need to go out and do that. And so the golf industry was kind of hurting from a country club perspective, but during this pandemic, uh, you know, the rounds have been up because people haven't been able to do much of anything else in terms of travel or do whatever they were used to doing. Now it's almost impossible as you two might be able to attest to get a tea time anymore. It's like, Boy, the floodgates open up when you can get a tea time seven days in advance. Then you're 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 chomping up a bit to go out there and try to get a tea time, and it's just nearly impossible now. So I guess that might be a positive outcome of the pandemic, if there is such a positive outcome. Uh, that you know the golf industry is going to probably take off a little bit and grow, and the millennials are flocking to it now. From what I see. You know, from what I've understood, anecdotally, I know that it's true in my case that you see a lot of the younger golfers out there on the golf course. And, you know, they probably play the game a little bit differently. They seem to have a little bit more fun playing music in their golf carts and things of that nature. But uh, I think that the the growth prospects now for the golf industry are going to be pretty positive over the next few years, which is good. I was so happy to see that the golf industry was taken off in that aspect because so many of them have lost money on the different functions that they could hold, you know, whether it's the golf tournaments or the weddings and that thing. And so it was good to see the green fees kind of subsidize that a little bit. Absolutely. And I think like, as you mentioned with the pandemic and COVID and everything that the game of golf is, has just took off. I mean, from my perspective, at least um, uh -huh. in the past, I have played golf a handful of times, usually once or twice a year. And I don't, I don't have my own clubs, no one really in my family golfs. So I would just borrow my friend's clubs and we would just use one set of clubs and go play golf. But now with the pandemic and everything, went out, got my own set of clubs and I was out there playing more this summer. Cause it's one of the things you can do. And I was actually there when, when Ethan played his first round of golf. <laughs> yeah. My first round of golf was during the pandemic. I put together a, uh, a set of my stepdad's old clubs and went out there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely 100%. <laughs> definitely <laughs> hooked. Definitely going to play more going forward. Yeah, I think that once uh, it only takes a few rounds of golf, you know, you get that ball airborne, you start, 
you know, scoring a little bit better, then all of a sudden it just sticks to you and uh, it sticks within you. You're hooked. Yeah, that's. I think that's going to be the case for millions of golfers out there. Now, I want to I want to go back to something that you just said. You mentioned the millennials growing the game amongst millennials, and they're out there playing music out on the course. You know what I mean? Right. Do you think there's going to be a change? in the culture of golf. Like, I don't want to say happy Gilmore, you know, cause that's, that's completely out of, out of this world, like exaggeration, you know what I mean? But if it was something less than that, um, like, like you said, playing, playing music in the cart or being a little bit more lax on the court, like, cause you have these certain set of rules on the course, like the golf rules, the history of golf. Yeah. The etiquette. Uh huh. Exactly. Do you think that we're going to see that kind of disappear going forward? Well, I think, uh, you know, when you brought up the rules, the rules have been uh, tampered down a little bit in the, you know, in 2019, uh, the United States Golf Association uh, came out with some new rules that have made the game, I think, you know, to speed it up a little bit, they're trying to make the rules a little bit more understandable, you know, so that your casual golfer doesn't have to go into the rule book every time and try to figure out things. So I think that's already happened. You know, for example, you can leave the the flag in the hole now on the putting green. And that's something that took a lot of us older golfers a long time to adjust to. It's like, wow, are you kidding me? You can actually leave the, the flag in on, on the green and have at the, <laughs> have the ball hit the flag, you know, and go in the hole, hopefully. But uh, yeah, so some of those rules have been laxed a little bit. And I would say too, that the etiquette has uh, become a little bit more lax too. And uh, I'm always stunned when I'm going out there and I hear people playing music in their cards and blaring away because that would be the one place where it was taboo. It's like, no, you don't do that on the golf course. Are you kidding me? You have to be quiet and respectful. But uh, no, I, I think that you hear a lot of the people being a little bit more uh, boisterous. Uh, you hear a lot of F-bombs out there. and uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's just the millennial do you think there's going to be a market for that in the future? Like, do you think we're going to see a golf course open up with that's completely like takes golf and turns it on its head? Something like, oh, like go out there, go have fun, like that sort of attitude. Will we ever oh, I, see that? I, I think you're already seeing that, Kyle. I think that, uh, you know, you've probably you've probably been to one of the golf simulators, right? The Top Golf, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is, which is uh, probably the top brand out there when it comes to simulated golf, but. Is that kind of like a prototype for it? You know what I mean? Like for that behavior? I, 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 I think it's where a lot of that behavior is allowed to happen. And then it probably just naturally gravitates towards the actual golf course. But, the, but uh, you know, when you go to a top golf, uh, you know, it's kind of like a bowling alley, you know, where everybody sits in a kind of, you know, the you know, curvature setup and everybody gets to see the person. It's a, yeah, it's a bowling concept brought to golf. And when you think of bowling, you know, you're out there having a good time, drinking a few beers and things like that. And that's what happens at top golf. And then uh, I think once people do become hooked or feel good about their golf game, if that's where they started out, then they, they do, they probably, I haven't done a study on that. I don't, haven't heard if anybody has done anything like that, but that's where that behavior is probably groomed. And then it's taken out onto the golf course and people just have a good time. I, I, I don't mind it. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of music playing when I'm trying to hit a golf ball, Yeah, but uh <laughs> Because I need all the concentration I can uh, that I can uh, use, but uh, I think in order for the golf industry to really cater to the millennials and Gen Z, who's uh, you know growing up with the game right now, or you know college age students, 
I think that they do need to be much more lax about things. And so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And, uh, but, you know, I think as people become older, they probably do like the fact that golf is a little bit more quiet and uh, mm -hmm. serene and it's a getaway. You know, that's one of the things that we looked at too, is that golf is kind of that, <clears throat> what we would call the, the liminal stage, you know, where it's that place that's in between and betwixt kind of using some old English there, but uh, what it means is that it's that getaway. You know, that you want that. You're not at work, you're not at home, but you're at some place. Kind of like, a, you know, Starbucks coffee is known as that third place. The coffee is that liminal phase too, where you're in between and betwixt and you get to enjoy life for a bit. You get to forget about all your troubles and worries and you're in a very nice, serene and beautiful, pristine environment. And so I, I don't know how much of that uh, as people get older, if that's going to actually hold on or not. It'll be interesting to find out. Ethan, do you want to switch gears here and talk about celebrity golf? Yeah, so actually that's a great segue because you mentioned bowling and I actually used to competitively bowl for uh, Stonehill in my oh, freshman. Yeah, yeah, we, um, we, we weren't too great of a team, but <laughs> it was always just for, it, we, we went out there and had a lot of fun. But um, so the big thing that I wanted to bring up there is celebrities in bowling, celebrities in golf that I know bowling like two chains teamed up with Jason Belmonte who... I believe is currently the best bowler in the world used to be at one point. And there was a similar aspect of things with golf where um, Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson played, uh, I think it was Manning and Tiger, Tiger. Woods. Yeah. There right. it is. And um, I wanted to see what your thoughts on like how getting celebrities that like you were saying, millennials, like everyone knows that's almost a household name, like Tom Brady, like Peyton Manning. Do you think that has played a big a uh, big role in growing the game of golf in millennials? I, I would say so. Uh, well, when that tournament came on, the one that you're talking about, the first one that the, the, the celebrity golf tournament with the uh, Manning and Brady and uh, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, uh, that was uh, during the early part of the pandemic, you know, and I think that people were so, so starved for live sports that they really did gravitate towards that event. And, uh, I, I did too. I watched uh, a few holes of it. Then actually I went out and played some golf, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that, you know, that, that that's going to really captivate a younger audience, especially when you have uh, really good players like uh, Steph Curry, even though he didn't have a very good showing during that golf tournament that he played in, he's an awesome player. You know? mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I, I think there's a good list of really good golfers out there that would love to participate in an activity like that or an event like that. And I think the younger golfers like that because, you know, they see these players uh, like a Steph Curry, who's an awesome basketball player. And they realize, wow, you know, golf is cool. You know, golf can be fun, you know, and they see someone like him or maybe a Tony Romo or the list goes on to really, really good golfers that are playing these other sports. And, you know, Charles Barkley's a character. He's always been a good <laughs> golfer. In fact, uh, whoever it was, his golf coach did an outstanding job of turning his. <laughs> you should swing study around. him. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, he had the the herkiest, jerkiest uh, golf swing that you've ever seen in your life. And you thought that he was making it up, but he wasn't. You know, he just didn't uh, know the mechanics of it. So somebody turned his swing around. And I think people love that. I, I enjoyed it. My golf buddies and I were talking about that for quite some time, you know, how interesting it was. And it was like, and Peyton Manning is just an absolute character out there. And I, what I found compelling about the whole thing, too, is what you got 
you mic'd up people like Phil Mickelson, you know, who's an outstanding short player, of course, you know, his record speaks for itself, but he was uh, telling all these intricate uh, details. He was at the, uh, he was teamed up with Brady, right? He was telling all so, yep. the really interesting, intricate details about the green and where to hit the ball. And you see that little bit of water right there, the ball's going to take off and do that sort of thing. And it's like, wow, you know, to be able to hear that, firsthand from a really good golfer like that and I think JT Justin Thompson Thomas was uh, one of the announcers too and it was really good to get his perspective on different parts of the courses and so I, I think from a learning standpoint too it's uh, has great potential but just to you know to grow the game of golf I think that's a really good investment for the industry to do is to have events like that just to keep people interested and then as you guys have just uh, attested to it uh, once you play, start playing the game and you get a little bit better at it uh, you're hooked. You're absolutely hooked. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's great for the, the game and to grow the audiences. That's interesting that you said getting their perspective, like miking up Phil Mickelson and all these things. You're starting to see that now. Um, I think baseball is doing a similar route, like in the preseason when you have the outfielders standing out there. I remember this clip with Mookie Betts. He has a mic on and he's talking to the announcers while playing the game of baseball. Yeah. And, he, and he goes and gets like a fly ball. Right. Like, like, do you think now with this technology, we're going to get a lot more deeper and more informational analysis of the game? Like, especially with the NFL, like you see, for example, Tony Romo in the booth, like he is bringing something completely different to the booth. That's, that's like a change. It's a shakeup. He's telling you uh, watchers of the NFL, what to look at, like watch this guy on this play. And do you think like we're starting to see that more and more across all sports? I, I would say so. I mean, you always had your expert analysis up in the football uh, booth or the baseball booth, you know, former players who were really good or the managers, coaches that were really good, you know. Uh, uh, so you've always had that. But I, I, I think from the perspective of being in uh, or on the field, I think is so interesting. So it's like you said, you know, Mike and I have Mookie Betts and how cool is that to understand yeah. what's going through their minds at the time that they're seeing that. And uh, yeah, the new technology, you know, the GoPro technology, being able to put, you know, cameras on their helmets or uh, heads, whatever the case might be. I, I think that's going to be necessary to grow the game because the expectation for the viewer anymore is so high. You can't just live on the merits of the game itself anymore and get by with that. You have to provide something that's extra. And I think, you know, just uh, going to a football stadium right now, you know, and I, I actually remarked on this uh, to my friends the other day. We were uh, texting each other and we were watching the Shell World of Golf. I don't know if you've ever seen that. The wonderful world of golf. The, it's a, it's a Shell has that's been produced for the last 50, 60 years. It really became popular in the 60s where you would have these celebrity golf tournaments, you know, where you bring out the likes of, you know, Arnold Palmer, Chichi Rodriguez, Jack Nicklaus, and all these famous golfers and have them play in a charity event like this. This is the silly season in golf. This is where prior to the wraparound season, you had about a three-month time period in the golf industry where you didn't have any golf tournaments at all. So you'd have the skins games, you'd have these celebrity challenges and things like that. But now you have the wraparound season and now you only have about a month off, you know, December where you're not having any uh, – PGA sanctioned tournaments but uh, my, my point is this I, I, I think that with the technology now uh, you know just the production quality that you see on TV the HD TV you know 4k or it's going up to 10k what you can do with the technology the visual appeal of the game 
is so high that you have to do something to keep people interested. And I think that's what, you know, football stadiums in the future are going to struggle with that because, you know, the quality of the game on TV is so great that you have to provide some kind of an extraordinary experience at the, the park or the venue itself in order to keep people captivated and paying a couple hundred dollars for a ticket. So I, I think that's all been a positive, but I think the expectation of the younger audiences anymore is that, hey, you have to dazzle me because if you don't, I can do many other things, whether that's video games or watch something uh, streaming uh, at my disposal. So they're not going to be as patient. The consumer is not going to be as patient as they've been in the past. And so the ante has been upped. And so, you know, whatever it takes, you know, baseball, I think is an interesting case study just because the median age of the viewer in baseball continues to grow older and older. And the younger viewer watches the game. It's not all that captivating. It takes forever. Where it used to be that you didn't have a whole lot of options as a kid growing up. And you would listen to the, the games on the radio and be entertained. And you'd listen to 162 games in a year on the radio. But now it's, oh, no, that's not the case anymore. You have to really bring your A game to keep people around. So it'll. Uh, I think baseball needs to become more innovative in that. I know that they have some social media restrictions and uh you know they're not really allowing their players to really promote the game as other sports are you know because of some of the restrictions that they have and i think that uh, you may have mentioned this the other day kyle that uh, you know you don't really know the top stars in baseball mm -hmm. like you used to you know you certainly you know in football you know all the players uh, i'm always dazzled by my 15 year old son who plays football <laughs> And he knows these players inside and out. And uh, I feel you know the depth fun. chart. You know who's the third running back oh, on this team. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It, it absolutely is. And he'll say, Dad, what do you think about this player? And I was like, Gosh, I don't, I've never even heard of that player. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I feel bad because I'm a sports marketing kind of a guy, but it's like they have a, <clears throat> a deep interest in it. And I, I would liken that to baseball. That's how baseball used to be. People mm -hmm, would know yeah. the players inside and out. You would trade baseball cards and you'd get to know the players like that one thing that i think that has really taken away the knowledge that people have about baseball is that it used to be that you'd get a newspaper and i remember this as a kid growing up in twin falls idaho my mom was from the chicago area and my dad lived out there for years and uh, even although my dad was born in idaho he met my mom in chicago after world war ii and um uh, he became a huge Cubs fan. My mom's side of the family were all big Cubs fans. And so I had no choice but to be a Cubs fan growing up. And we would get an afternoon paper in Idaho. And uh, I remember waiting for that afternoon paper. And that's where I would find out whether the Cubs won the previous day was that next afternoon. And I'd go through the box scores and look at it, what every player did. But I would also glance at what all the other teams did too. You know, that was the sports page. We didn't have the internet or anything like that. And so we went through the entire uh, sports page, looked down at the box scores. And so you got to know all the other players. And then you would trade your baseball cards and you'd get to know players that way too. And then you'd get one game a week on TV. You know, if you lived in a small market like I did in Twin Falls, you'd get that one game of the week or maybe a Monday night game as well. And it didn't matter who was playing. You were just interested in watching a live event. And it didn't matter to you that the game took two and a half hours because you were captivated the whole time. But uh, the ante has been raised and now people have to be engaged in different ways, like you were saying with Mookie Betts. And so I think baseball needs to become much more innovative in how they produce the game, how they make it more interesting. 
they have to speed it up somehow. I mean, people mm-hmm. cannot devote three plus hours to the game of baseball every especially night. on a regular season game like that. Just no way. No. I, For 162 games, absolutely not. You're you're correct all the way, and uh, they they have to speed it up, whatever that takes. I mean, whether it's you know not allowing the batters to get outside the batter box after every pitch, or you know, I think the pitchers are speedy enough in most cases, mm-hmm. but I think it's yeah. the batters that are slowing it down. But whatever it takes, it's they're going to have to be more innovative. They're going to have to think of the younger audience if they want to remain relevant. There's, Absolutely, football is fascinating as heck to watch. You know, with all the different camera angles that they have now and all the stats going on, you don't get bored at all. <clears throat> so. Ethan and I grew grew up Red Sox fans, and Ethan, name five Red Sox players right now off the top of your head who are on the cool. roster. Go. I couldn't tell you. First person that came to my mind was David Ortiz, and he's been gone for. A and he's while. he's gone. He's <laughs> gone. You know, we it's 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 crazy the the way baseball is just kind of just falling down the wayside, and it's so interesting that you said that you brought up the newspaper and baseball, because it seems like baseball is very stats driven, and it was from the beginning, especially nowadays, with uh-huh. um with all the analytics that go into baseball when you do the shift, and it's like all right, this guy hits over here, so we're gonna put all these players over here on this side of the field. So it seems like even from the beginning, it was very stats driven, very calculated. Yeah. And I, I, that's a very interesting point. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, money ball, you know, mm. I, I think that kind of shifted uh, or not shifted, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, raised the expectation of what stats could do. And so I think it really kind of took off from there. And so, yeah, a lot of the art behind baseball is probably going down the wayside, you know, when you see these shifts going on. And I personally don't mind seeing those shifts because it's a, it's intriguing to me to see that they're that risky in doing that. It looks kind of odd, you know, to see all the players on the left, right side of the field or on the left side of the field. And uh, my philosophy is that if, if you don't want the team to shift on you, then learn how to hit to the opposite exactly. field. Like bunt it to the other baseline, you know what I mean? Do something. Yeah, yeah do something. We're not, yeah. And so I, I think it's incumbent upon the player to do that. I, I, I'd be kind of insulted if I were a player and they all stacked <laughs> me on one side of the, the field. I'd say, my gosh, you think that I don't have enough ability to hit one over here? So I'd be practicing all winter long to make sure I knew how to do something. <laughs> like that. But, uh, and I think that you're going to probably see less of a shift going on in the future, just because I think players are going to figure that out, you know, how to hit to the opposite field. The other teams are going to get stung a few too many times and realize, okay, we can't keep on doing that. But I like that. I, I, I kind of like that. Uh, I love the movie Moneyball and just to, you know, that's been dramatized a little bit, but of course, Billy Bean was, you know, he transformed the game at that time. Then everybody else caught up to him and he was no longer able to really, uh, use that as a competitive advantage, even though Oakland still has done quite well being a small market team over the years. But uh, I kind of like that aspect of it. Uh, I, I love it when people take advantage of new technology and data analytics, whether it's in the production of whatever they're doing or in how to play the game. So, you know, I, I often think, how would these players respond to some of the greater teams of the past? You know, if you were to, you know, play, I would say like the Jacksonville Jaguars, a horrible team, you know, how would they stack up against the, being a Bears fan, I have to say, how would they have <laughs> stacked up to the 1985 Bears, you know, one of the greatest teams of all time? How would they have stacked up? And I would think that, you know, the Jacksonville of today, you know, because the players are bigger and stronger, you have that going for it. But 
because of the technology and the way that I understand the game, I think that Jacksonville had no problem playing the Bears of 1985. You know, so I think that I, I'm fascinated by that part of it. I, I like the fact that the games, not just baseball, but all games are transforming and becoming brighter and all that. You know, you have to do that. So I find it intriguing. Ethan, you want to talk about Bruce? Let's talk about Bruce. Yeah. So I um I, I never took you as a student, obviously. Um, Kyle took your classes and mentioned to me that um you've done research comparing was it baseball fans to Bruce Springsteen fans? Well, I never did that, but uh, I, I I do a lot of uh, uh, what's considered fan behavior research. You know, right now I'm uh, focusing on a study of uh, golf fan behavior. You know, I find that. Ex- uh, really intriguing just because I've attended a lot of uh, PGA Tour events myself. And my goal is always to try to combine my passion, what I really like, into my research just because it, it feels uh, it's more pleasurable. It's a less, less of an effort. It doesn't feel like a job or it doesn't feel like work when you're combining your passion with that. And so right now, I'm, uh, it's been put on hold because you can't go to any live events right now. But to go to all these different venues and look at some of the fan behavior involved. And uh, one that I was really intrigued by was uh, the Waste Management Phoenix Open. And uh, you may be familiar with uh, that event. Uh, the 16th hole of the Coliseum, that's where they have 20,000 fans gathered around one hole of golf. You know, they have the, the stands built up and the fans are allowed to get as rowdy and uh, ruckus as possible. In fact, uh, we went there in February and uh, my son and I had lined up to rush the gate so that we could get a seat out in the Coliseum. And so anyway, my son being much younger and fleet of foot uh, kind of led the way. <laughs> I was actually conducting my class at that time. And believe <laughs> it or not, I had my class on. We used Ultra Collaborate at the time before we got Zoom. But I had my class, my sports marketing class that was meeting at 8.30 and we had gathered for the gate at around, what was it, a two hour time difference in Phoenix compared to the Boston area. So we were gathered at the gate around 6, 6.30 and so I was kind of giving my students a broadcast of what was going on and uh, lining up at the gate and then all of a sudden they opened up the gates and my son was fortunate to get us two front row seats right there. Wow. And this was, wow. you lined up two or so hours before even the first golfers came by but and people were getting drunk they were yelling they were anything would excite them from the you know people on the green measuring the green on with the stint meter you know the fans would go nuts over that it's like wow this is just amazing but we had a really good time my son was wearing his uh, chicago bears football jersey and <laughs> we were walking down one hole and some guy wearing a uh, Packers jersey challenged my son in front of a thousand people to do push-up contest and my son was all beat red and he just ran and I didn't run off but he walked off to the next hole I said come on Mike challenge man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, anyway that's a fan behavior study that I'm doing we were going to go to the Masters uh, last year but of course that was postponed uh, without any fans and then we were going to go to the Ryder Cup my wife's a huge golf fan as well she had volunteered to go to the Ryder Cup we had everything set up and that was canceled as well but so I'm doing that fan behavior study I'm always in, intrigued by fans uh, across all different sports but so that's what we're doing there and uh, just to go off the golf experiment too uh, or the golf area of research, I'm doing a golf foursome study right now, you know, and what it's like to play in golf foursome, some of the rituals that are involved in that. So I'm collecting data on that. And that's a, 
you know, so I figured if I'm going to play a lot of golf, I'm going to do something that's going to be of interest in terms of research. But another study that uh, I conducted, I've always been a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. Okay. His music has been very meaningful to me. And, you know, Bruce Springsteen has been, you know, been around playing in front of audiences for almost 60 years now, you know, from his time as a, uh, I think it was Steel Mill, and then he became a, a solo artist, and then of course he became part of the E Street Band, and and so on and so forth. But I've always been so intrigued as to how he's able to gather such a big audience, and uh, his following in Europe is extremely huge as well. But anyway, I interviewed a lot of Bruce Springsteen fans, those who have gone to multiple live shows, to figure out what makes them tick, what makes them so intrigued by Bruce Springsteen. And so Brian Glubkowski, my former colleague, and I conducted this study. And uh, what we really discovered is that uh, his music is all about redemption. You know, of mm-hmm. course, you know, uh, that's one of his famous lines in one of his songs, you know, uh, uh, Thunder Road. But, uh, you know, the people said that, that they feel like I do a lot of underdog research and so, but they highlighted everything as being about redemption and the underdog. And those are stories, even though Bruce Springsteen uses very specific characters in his music, you know, Mary or Wendy and uh, all the different characters that he uses, uh, people resonate with that. And uh, they like his stories, even, you know, when he plays in Spain and places like that in Europe, people know some of his most, uh, the deepest tracks, you know, that he's ever produced and they can sing along word for word of everything. It's like, what do you know about Greasy Lake or uh, all these other things? And there was a reporter, was it the Brooks uh, from the New York Times who wrote a column about that, that he was so amazed as to how, you know, Bruce Springsteen fans knew all the intricate songs and uh, the words to all these different lyrics, but they identified with him because even though they were specific to Bruce, they could identify their own uh, characters, their own places. And so his music has always resonated with people. It's all about redemption, even the album Nebraska. In fact, I was listening to a podcast the other day, Rick Rubin and Malcolm Gladwell were interviewing Bruce Springsteen on his new album that he just put out. And uh, they were going through some of his uh, deeper tracks. You know, they were talking about the album Nebraska, which is a, a, a solo production. He tried to perform it with the E Street Band, but it, it didn't turn out the way that he had envisioned it. And so he decided to go solo with that album. And that album, I think it reached number one on the charts. But if you listen to it, uh, it was so gray and dismal, so bleak, the whole album was. But there was one song that they mentioned, uh, The Highway Patrolman. And there was that little bit of redemption at the end of that song where the Highway Patrolman's uh, brother was a criminal. And he kind of let him get away, go off to the next county or wherever it was because uh, he was saying that, you know, blood is thicker than water. And that was kind of the redemption of that whole album. The album, if you listen to it word for word, is very, very bleak. But anyway, people were saying that that's one thing that they liked about Bruce Springsteen and these shows is that it was, and this is no secret, this is not my finding, but it's kind of like a religious experience when you go to a Bruce Springsteen show because he almost treats, uh, treats the audience like a congregation. And then you go through this religious uh, metamorphosis. So at the end, you're jumping around, you're feeling really, really good, but he can draw you into songs that have a lot of huge uh, meaning, deep meaning, like uh, Racing in the Streets, where uh, a man is talking about his wife, you know, who's depressed. And uh, you didn't really know that because you thought the song was about racing in the streets, drag racing, getting off of work, you're a blue collar 
man and you want to race in the streets with your buddies you know uh, soup up your car so that you can be the fastest one out there but it was really about the depression of the man's wife that you kind of mm-hmm. hear and uh, he's always been about that he's always been able to identify with the 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 deep needs motivations of people and kind of bring them out of that and so you know, uh, I, I interviewed a lot of people who said, yeah, you know, I, I would see other men crying at these events, you know, because those songs resonated with them. And for me, you know, his music was always about that, too. It's like, wow, you know, as a young kid growing up, you wanted to latch on to some music that was meaningful to you, not just, you know, jump around and things like that, but something that had a deep impact. And Bruce Springsteen's always been like that. I've been a fan of his for over 40 years now, and it's a, he's still going on and still relevant today. And I, I just find that fascinating. I heard he came out with a uh, new album recently. Have you given it a listen? Oh, yeah. Uh, downloaded it immediately. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'm forgetting the title of it right now. But Is yeah, it Letters but, to You? Letters to You, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but yes, I listen to that uh, all the time. And uh, in his words, I used the other day that uh, this is about, you know, the bands that he's been in. Uh, one... Uh, I can't remember the group. I don't think it was Still Mill, maybe the Stills. Uh, he is the last member still standing from that group that started in the 60s. Wow. And uh, he just kind of used that as a moment of reflection. The whole album is kind of a moment of reflection going back in time, looking at how you know, his musical uh, uh, partners have kind of gone by the wayside. You know, One of the famous ones that died about 10 years ago was Clarence Clemens, you know, the big man on the sax. And, uh, you know, he's just kind of realizing his own mortality now. He's realizing that, you know, hey, he's in his 70s. He's probably not going to be around forever. And, you know, he's, he, but he's still not afraid to experiment with new things. For example, a couple of years ago, three years ago, I think it was now, that he was on Broadway for uh, almost a year's time, or maybe it was longer than a year because I think it was expanded. But there he would play in front of an audience of, you know, fewer than a thousand people. And he was able to, bring on a whole different side of his uh, uh, his entertainment, his uh, showmanship and in a very intimate setting. And so he's not afraid to experiment, to put himself out there. But what we discover too in his uh, works is that he's very authentic. At least everything that he does appears to be very, very authentic to the to the listener, to the fan, because he lives his, wife, his life the way that you would expect him to. I think he went through a phase there when he married his first wife I can't think of her name right now. He lived in California and he realized this is not me. You know, and a lot of his work that he came out with in the early 90s kind of reflected that, you know, that he wasn't happy trying to portray or be somebody that he wasn't. And I think that he had to go through that transition for his followers to kind of believe in him. And then, of course, he moved back to New Jersey, close to his hometown of, uh, of uh, Asbury Park. And... Uh, he just uh, everybody believes in what he does he's a very charitable person yet you'll not you will not find out from him that he does a lot of things behind the scenes that are very very charitable uh when he gives his performances he gives it all out he leaves everything out there it's a very big physical performance but he's so inclusive he knows how to make people feel good and people feel good about following him because he is so authentic you may not agree with his politics whatever the case might be depending on which side of the aisle that you stand on but uh, he's always authentic. He says what he means and he, he believes it as far as you know, you know, and he just comes across that way. And I think that's what has endeared him to his followers throughout the world. Yet when he's being interviewed, he comes across as this 
you know, just very understated, very humble type of a person, you know, and kind of like a Tom Petty, Tom Petty. Oh, oh he's, I was a huge Tom Petty fan too. And uh, I think that the, Tom Petty is resonating too with the younger audience. You know, his music was very classic. A lot of his music was very identifiable and it was very authentic and true as well. And so Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, I think are in that same category that uh, they'll have that enduring audience until you know, they're long out of this world. So yes. I, I got to be honest. So um, with Springsteen, I've, I've listened to all the hits and maybe Ethan, I, I've, I'm sure you have too. We're both huge music people. Um, but I, during quarantine and everything, I actually, every, every night for like a week, I would listen to every Bruce Springsteen album, top to bottom, just to hear everything. And doing that is such a different experience than just hearing the hits. You know, I'm sure Ethan can attest, but like people like that I know that are my peers, the, really the the two major songs I would say that people know from Bruce Springsteen are Born in the USA and then also uh, Dancing in the Dark. Right. Both off of, uh, yeah, Born in the USA album. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Ethan and I actually went to the Struts show and they played it there, right? Do you remember that, Ethan? The whole album? Hey, I was on crutches at the time, so I, I, I don't remember it necessarily. But <laughs> no. But uh, anyway, the Struts, uh, they during every show, they play Dancing in the Dark, and it gets the crowd going, and they usually bring up um, like a person who's like young, five or six, up on stage to dance with them and get the energy going. So that's amazing that they're keeping like that energy alive. I'll uh, Courtney Cox when she uh, jumped on stage with, uh, with Bruce. And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got I got another question going off that off, off Springsteen. So nowadays Taylor Swift is all the rage. She just came out with two albums in a span of a couple months. She wrote all during quarantine folklore and evermore. And she has a very similar way of writing as Bruce Springsteen, I would say. And in the way that now she's developing these characters, like you said that Bruce did Taylor's kind of doing that the same way. She's introducing these characters, these storylines, and her music has gotten really complex, much very similar to Bruce. Have you okay. given that a listen at all? I know my uh, daughter likes Taylor Swift, and uh, you know she'll play uh, her songs every now and then. I I, I have the utmost respect for her musical ability and, and so forth, and I haven't really listened to her songs that in depth to understand the how the characters might resonate. But there has to be something there because. She can fill a you know a Gillette Stadium. She can fill any stadium. You know, have multiple shows over time. So, uh, I think there's a lot of substance to her writing and uh, her. Uh, she's obviously a fantastic entertainer, and so yeah, I think there has to be some depth to her lyrics, and I think that's fascinating. If uh, she's going off into the Bruce direction, you know, <laughs> if that's intentional or not, I think that's great. I think you have to. I think. In order to transition, well, she started off in country music, right? Yep. And uh, was a phenom from the get-go. And then I think she's uh, transitioned much more into, it's not even crossover anymore, it's a uh, pop. Yep. I was considered pop music. But I think that she's probably very aware of the fact that in order to endure for the long haul, to become somebody who's a pop artist into something that's going to transition into something much longer and have a longer career and strong following, you have to be able to have much more depth to your music because your young followers want to be engaged more you know they mm -hmm. want to learn more and so i think that's a, a that's necessary to do that i think madonna did the same thing madonna 
you know, transitioned to that as well. And she still has a career that's pretty vibrant. Uh, Michael Jackson, you know, I think that he was able to sustain his career for as long as he did because he kind of transitioned from a pop artist into something that had a little bit more depth. And uh, so I, I think that's a necessity. And uh, no, I, I have the utmost regard for that. If they want to do that, I, I mean, for me, I when I think of a, a musician, and being up on stage and playing in front of all those people and the ability to sing and play these instruments, I think that is the best talent that you can have. I, mm-hmm. I you know, you see movie stars, actors and actresses. I think, I, I don't think that's nearly as impressive as being a rock star or performer, whatever it is, because you have to understand music. You have to understand how to play music. You have to be able to be a songwriter. And that's what I've always liked about Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty is that they write their own music. You know, they, they, they're not cover artists. They don't, you know, they, they have covered uh, different artists. Don't get me wrong there, but they, most of their material is their own material. It's heartfelt. They understand how to play music. They can understand the entertain audiences at the same time. So people like Taylor Swift, all these performing artists that are able to do that. I think that's outstanding. And uh, I have the utmost respect for those types of artists. So I, um, I've been thinking about this the entire time you've been talking. Um, when you were mentioning the artists that you've researched, you've mentioned Bruce Springsteen and um, Tom Petty, both of them being more or less like solo-ish, where they have their band, but they're mostly known for themselves. And I wanted to see what you thought about bands like uh, the Eagles. I'm, I'm a huge Eagles fan where there's a lot of, um, you know, subtle double meanings to songs, as well as um, bands like U2 there. Right. And I wanted to see if you could get that same because I feel like one of the things that I was thinking while you were talking about the fan behavior is the relatability and how you can relate to the one person like Bruce Springsteen, like Tom Petty, who's done it all. Whereas like a band like the Eagles, like U2, it's a little more spread out there where there's more than one uh, prominent member. Right. And I want oh, to see I, your thoughts on that. Oh yeah. I think, uh, you know, the argument goes on you know, uh, pound for pound which bands have been the most talented across the board, you know? And I, I think, uh, well, the Eagles, of course, you had, you know, even though you had a, kind of an evolving door of uh, different members that have come in there, you know, uh, Don Felder came and went, and some of the first uh, starting members, you know, came and went. There were always personality conflicts. And I remember listening to an interview from uh, Joe Walsh. You know, Joe Walsh is the, he joined the band after he had a successful career, solo career. And after he had already been with uh, James Gang, where they had a few hits in the early 70s. And so he joined the band. He had a lot of credibility. And he was mentioning the fact that they were all type A personalities or uh, not type A. What did he say? They were all alphas, you know. And so all of them had their own direction on where the band wanted to go, which created a lot of you know, creative tension in the group but everybody could contribute something because everybody was a star in their own right. You know, whether you're talking about Timothy B. Schmidt, Randy Meisner, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, uh, Joe Walsh, you know, all these uh, guys could go off and do their own solo stuff. And so they had credibility to back them up. And that's why eventually the band broke up because they were also headstrong in their ways of wanting to do things. But uh, yeah, I think that that stands as a great example. And I think that, you know, the music that they put out in the 70s was some of the best. I think that they still have the record for the best selling greatest hits album of all time. I mean, that kind of created a new structure on how you could make some money if you weren't producing any other kind of material. And it's unfortunate that the band 
kind of disbanded when they did back in night what was it 1980 or thereabouts you know they i can't remember the last album was it the long run but anyway yeah. they broke up uh, shortly after that and uh, then look at what the success of the uh, all the individuals had at that point you know glenn fry uh, Don Henley became, uh, and his music in the 80s was outstanding. And we would have never have had that music had they uh, still maintained their, you know, their band. Then, of course, you know, they regrouped back in the uh, the 90s, was it 94? Thereabouts that they came out with their, uh, they combined again. I think that's when uh, Joe Walsh had finally become dry. You yeah. know, sober ever since. But uh, um yeah, I, I think they're a unique case, you know, and you have bands like the Beatles, of course, all of them were stars in their own right, too. Very, very talented. And, uh, you know, Tom Petty has had, uh, you know, he's known for his solo stuff, uh, but he's always had a very successful band members as well. Uh, Michael Campbell is uh, an outstanding guitarist. And uh, so and Ben Montench is a great keyboard players, but these guys probably couldn't hold their own. As I think that's what you're trying to get at is that they probably couldn't make themselves solo artists and have the same kind of uh, success. You know, look at Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He has a lot of very, very talented players within there. You know, Nils Lofgren and, uh, of course, Miami Steve Van Zant and uh, Clarence Clemens, who, you know, has passed. Patty Scafola has come out with some solo stuff, but nothing that rivals what uh, Bruce has done. But when you go back to the Eagles, you know, all those guys uh, were very, very successful with their solo careers. You know, Glenn Fry, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you were talking about um, like they're all butting heads personality wise. But uh, to think, I remember also watching an interview with, um, I think it was Joe Walsh as well on the Hotel California solo. Uh-huh. How a lo- like that beginning part before the dual guitar really kicks in, how it was a lot of, oh, you can do that. Well, I can do this. A little oh, yeah. rivaling guitar there. It was Don Felder that was playing it uh, as well. That they were up, he and Don Felder were playing. Yeah, I, I've heard about that too. And you know, that's uh, probably one of the best solos out there, right? And uh, I would definitely say so. preludes and uh, the endings of the song. Yeah, that's a uh, just outstanding. But uh, that just goes to show you how much talent that they had in that group. And uh, I, I watched a documentary on them as well, and I think that. Yeah, I, I think Glenn Fry was getting a little bit upset that uh, Don Henley was taking more of the vocal work over. But, you know, you don't get a voice. Uh, you don't have a voice like Don Henley's and uh, kind of keep it in the background. You know, you got to give it its due. And uh, he just uh, has an outstanding voice. And, uh, you know, just think, uh, I don't know, Glenn Fry had a good voice, too, or, uh, you know, but nothing could rival Don Henley's, I would say. But no, I think it is interesting. I think that you know, when you get talented, you know, the, you were referring to you too, as well. You know, I think, uh, none of those guys, uh, you know, could go off and do anything solo. And I'm kind of glad that, uh, Bono has never, or at least to my knowledge has produced anything solo. You know, it's always been part of the you too. And I, I, I like that, you know, where they kind of realized that, hey, you know what, we need all of us together in order yeah. to produce what's you too. So, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Another uh, group that I am very, very fond of, a uh, big fan of, is Rush. You know, I don't know if you ever listened to Rush. Of course, you know, uh, Neil Peart has passed away. You know, the drummer that's known as one of the best drummers of all time. He recently mm-hmm. passed away. But uh, I had seen them a few times in concert uh, before uh, they quit that last tour. And they all kind of knew that that was going to be the last tour. But those guys, too, I for a three-person band and the noise 
not the noise, but the sound that they were able to come up with. I mean, you have no time off. If you're a live performer and you're only a three person band, you can't take time off. You can't let this guy do a guitar solo over here and just kind of kick back and relax because you have to be there with the drums. You have to be there with the, the bass and Getty Lee, I think is just a, one of the best performers of all time. He has that very distinct voice, but he can do three things at one time. He can sing, he can play the synthesizer and he can play the bass. And he's not just thumping the bass, like do, 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 you know, all over the place. And so <laughs> oh, yeah. I, to me, I think his talent is second to none. And, uh, you know, Alex Lifeson, I don't think ever really got as much credit as he deserved for being a, a great guitarist because he's doing rhythm and lead at the same time. And then of course, Neil Peart, uh, uh, he was an outstanding drummer, but he was also the lyricist. I was like, my gosh, you guys. And so I don't think there'll ever be another rush out there. So uh, I, uh, it sounds like you guys are, love music and uh, I certainly do as well, but uh, yeah, very interesting topic. Limelight was the first song that I ever blasted in my car first time i got my license and i could go out on my own i'm like all right put in that rush cd and i played limelight and oh I is that right it. yeah oh. i was driving up the road and listening to limelight i was like yes yes if you can play that song quietly more power to you it's impossible, <laughs> it's impossible. i mean i remember uh you know play listening to that song scheme we used to have astral tunes is what they were called <laughs> we have a cassette player that was strapped to around your body but uh, i remember playing that music uh, and it's like wow it doesn't get any better than that but the now rush was just flat out awesome 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 well professor mcginnis thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for taking the time to, out of your day to to be on professor five with us i had ten thousand questions written down that we didn't get to but i'm sure we'll have you on in the future at some point oh good i would love to and uh, no this has been a lot of fun i mean how much more fun can you have and talking sports and the music. I mean, this has been a lot of fun and uh, I enjoyed listening to, to your questions and your feedback as well. And uh, I'd be happy to join you again. I hope I gave you some material that you can use. Oh, absolutely. I would say so. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you guys. And that concludes this episode of Professor Fi. It was honestly great to sit down with what Professor McGinnis. What an episode it was. Professor McGinnis, thanks again for coming on the show. Honestly, it was really good to hear what he had to say about what we talked to. We covered a lot of material there. Let's see from golf to what's his face. Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. What's his face. Bruce Springsteen in that. <laughs> no, we're not keeping that. We're keeping that. I got to do it. But no, absolutely not. I'm going to do the editing. I'm going to take it out. No. Oh my God. I forgot the boss himself's name. The boss. Oh my goodness. Anyways. Follow us wherever you can find your podcast listening. We also have a Facebook page, an Instagram page, a Twitter, all of which revolve around the Professor Fi name. Search that up and you'll find it. And most importantly, tell your friends word of mouth advertising, just like that AT&T commercial. That's how they used to do it before commercials. So let's get back on that word of mouth advertising. Tell your friends to listen to us if they want to learn something and be half entertained as they listen to it. And once again, thank you all for listening to us. Bye.